Thanks very much. I am glad to be here. Uh, I uh, would like to begin with just stating what I want to do today. Of course, I don't want to give you a recapitulated version of the book. This would have meant that I'm like treating myself as a classic, like poets reading their poems. I cannot do that. Uh, just a, a short note of friendly polemics. Melissa was quoting that uh, introduction as kind of a, a inscribing me also into that not against you, but against my good friend Creston, no? who wrote the introduction, where he tries to squeeze me into this kind of a, how should I put it, post-secular turn, you know, like secular politics as at its end, we need to redescribe, we need to return to a divine dimension, and then as the story goes, it's not the old metaphysical God, but, and then all this, the construction is... Uh, improvisations began, of course there is no God, but this nothingness, this voice itself is a divine dimension from where an, an, from an, an unfathomable ethical call originates and all that stuff and so on and so on. I'm not part of that. If there is a thing I'm totally opposed to, it's this kind of, a, uh, how should I put it, a, sub, uh, this kind of a sublime return of the post metaphysical, theological dimension, like Jean-Luc Marion's title of his book, uh, 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 God Beyond Being, you know, no longer the ontotheological God, but, and so on. I think that this, and if I were to give here a more philosophical talk, that's the direction I would have taken. Uh, what I reject, together with my good colleague, theoretical friend and practical Alain Badiou, what I reject is precisely the modesty of this, let's call it, post-secular theology. The thought is often called weak thought, like, you know, Gianni Vatimo has this idea of pensiero debole, weak thought, in the sense of the traditional metaphysics was... Uh, strong with great ontological claims, contact with the absolute, we should have a weak thought, aware of its own limitation, and so on and so on. When the last time I met Gianni Vatimo, who is also a good friend of mine and reformed communist, now he, that's very nice, he <laughs> become again a, a communist, and I told him that I agree with his idea of weak thought on condition that like, he also introduced the term weak communism. I told him, okay, it's weak. I accept it. If you accept that precisely because it's weak, it needs a strong secret police and so on to, to, to defend it, no? Then I'm for weak thought. But more seriously, uh, there is something else which should make you wonder. No, slightly more serious direction. Namely, uh, did you notice how, in contrast to previous centuries, especially the 19th century, when the topic of finitude was, as it were, reserved for materialism. Spiritualists, idealists were talking, I simplified very much, but nonetheless, about the infinite, the spiritual dimension is our contact with the infinite, and so on. All of a sudden, it started with Heidegger, Heidegger 
taken over by others. In the 20th century, it's the very finitude which becomes the ultimate support of spiritualization. Uh, the idea is that precisely insofar as we are finite beings, that is to say, irreducibly thrown into a world that we cannot ever dominate, rooted in this world, unable to withdraw from our concrete place in historical reality to gain a kind of a neutral position above the run of outside the run of things. Precisely because of this, we cannot ever think of dominating technologically or in any other way reality. So we have to remain open for a, an unfathomable transcendent otherness. So again, no wonder that even with cinema makers, I noticed, like who is the most materialist cinema maker, arguably, probably, of the 20th century? My choice would have been Andrei Tarkovsky, the Russian guy. But he's also the most spiritualist. You, know, you see, this idea that precisely because we are stuck into our bodies, our place, we, this gives to our existence an unfathomable abyss that sustains it, which is the proper place of spirituality. And on the other hand, the only ones who are ready to take over in a way that I don't accept, but nonetheless, the old topics of immortality, uh, infinity, in the sense of getting out of one's body, are some, usually even the more vulgar ones, uh, Darwinists or brain scientists or cognitive scientists, no? You know, who claim, you know, this idea that the ultimate, in, especially in so-called tech gnosis movement, where the idea is that the ultimate goal of recent digital biogenetic developments is to transform our very personal identity into, to cut a long story short, into software, into a virtual program which can be then downloaded from one to another hardware so we can indefinitely reproduce ourselves. So that's an interesting reversal where I am together with Alain Badiou on the side of infinity here. Not this vulgar materialist infinity but nonetheless an infinity. If nothing else, the Freudian infinity, even immortality. It's my old thesis which I also developed in the book that <coughs> The Freudian name for immortality is paradoxically precisely death drive. You should read here very carefully, Freud. Death drive has nothing to do with this nirvana, of course understood in uh, our vulgar westernized way. We all want to die, oh I want to disappear. No, what Freud calls death drive is some kind of persistence which, which which insists beyond life and death, even after death. Like, as I developed often in my book, the, one of the figures of this immortality, this obscene immortality, are vampires, living dead, all these undead figures. This is the Freudian death drive. It's, again, the name for the very opposite of death, finitude, and so on. But that's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about today is nonetheless some more political stuff. Why? And I don't think this is entirely a bad phenomenon. Why 
theology is re-emerging as a reference in today's politics. I would like to begin with my old topic, but some new things to say about it, the topic of neighbor. Neighbor precisely in the sense this notion, this word was elaborated, is present in the entire Judeo-Christian tradition, where neighbor, as we all know, I hope, is not the fellow man. Neighbor is not the one with whom I have a relationship of empathy, understanding his world, and so on. No, the, the elementary experience of neighbor is precisely the opposite one. I experience someone as neighbor. Let's say there is someone whom I know very well all my life, and then all of a sudden this person does something usually evil, something totally unexpected which shatters my perception, my knowledge, my understanding of him or her, an evil smile, a, a, a momentary sadistic gesture or whatever, like you, you kick a small child, whatever, how can you do this? At that point he becomes a, a neighbor. That's the neighbor. The neighbor is precisely the abyss beyond the fellow men. Uh, and I think this notion is more and more acquiring political significance lately. When Christianity, the way I read it, in a totally atheist way, of course, when Christianity says, love your neighbor, it means precisely, love this terrifying dimension beneath all these nice aspects where one can sympathize with others. Love the toxic dimension of the other. And I will talk immediately more about it. Because I think this is one of the signals of our fear of the neighbor. Namely, how? I don't know if you noticed it. I noticed it only recently, uh, 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 surfing on internet, Amazon comments, so on. How popular all of a sudden has become in last years the topic of toxic subjects. In what sense others can become toxic for us. And what is a clear signal that this notion of toxic subjects is ideological? A clear signal is how the predicate toxic in toxic subjects covers a series of properties which belong to totally different levels. Natural, cultural, psychological, political, military, and so on. A toxic subject can be an immigrant with a deadly disease, Ebola, whatever. We, we must quarantine him. It can be a terrorist who should be prevented or should be sent till now to Guantanamo. Now we will see where. I'm sure other places are prepared. Uh, it can be a fundamentalist ideologist. It can be a sexual molester parent, teacher, it can be a priest who abuses corrupt children, whatever. Uh, uh, so why, which is the dimension of this toxic other? Let me, I hope I'm not, I checked it up, repeating myself here, uh, let me tell you if, again, please interrupt me if I'm repeating myself with regard to when I was the last time here, all I remember is that when I was here one time before the last time, one year and a half ago, something very weird happened. Weird to my decadent European 
tastes. Uh, but I will not be involved in usual uh, Europe, uh, sorry, U.S. America bashing, quite the opposite. Namely, what happened is that after the talk, I was here with my friend Mladen Dolar. We were invited with some professors and postgraduate stu students to a dinner. And then, since we didn't know each other, the professor who moderated the, the evening asked each of us to present himself, herself, with the, the, uh, the title where, the, what, I mean, employment, work, with topic he or she is dealing, and with sexual orientation. Now, for my European taste, this was pretty weird. I mean, like, <laughs> what's going on, no? Uh, now, uh, again, what I don't want to imply here is that, oh, these are you vulgar Americans, your idea is just you want to be coming out in all possible ways, <laughs> declare it. Uh, no, that's not my point. My point is, first, I'm not so stupid as not to notice that this way of declaring your toxic aspect, as it were, no, is precisely a way to keep it as a, at a distance. You in the United States know very well, and it took me a long time to understand this, how what we Europeans understand as this almost pushy, excessive openness is at a much more refined level a mode of practicing the exact opposite. For example, when I came to New York first time, old story, I repeat it all the time, I was shocked at how a waiter, at least this happens in Lower Manhattan, no? uh, to establish some kind of personal contact tells you immediately, oh, hi, how are you? I mean, I'm an idiot. Idiot is defined by, as a guy who takes things too literally. And I answer, I didn't know that this is pure ritual where you are supposed to answer, I'm okay. I told him, no, very bad, I just had a, a bad flight, I'm in a jet lag. And he looked me as if I am what I was, an idiot, no? Because, you see, and I claim that when we were asked for our sexual orientations, it was the same. It wasn't this over-intrusive, oh, I see, if yours is the same as mine, then we go somewhere in <laughs> afterwards. No, it was precisely to establish a distance. But nonetheless, what, and here maybe is one of the ways to to formulate the difference between, at very elementary level, between United States and Europe. You, in United States, you have this openness, declare your sexuality, which is the very mode of appearance of what I claim, if I may use this horrible abstract generalities, is, is your puritanism. There is something, I think, very puritan in this urge that you must uh, declare yourself. Uh, we, but uh, we in Europe uh, may be less open at this level, but we in Europe are more open at other levels. For example, what happened to me and also my friend Mladen Dolaris, a couple of years ago we were visited by an American friend of ours. And we went to the, there on the Mediterranean Sea to a beach. And this friend of ours was shocked by how, well, all the women there were, almost all, were uh, with naked breasts. That's considered, I don't know, it happened already under 
communism in the last 30 years, it's totally liberalized. It's considered normal. No, nobody even... Uh, nobody even notices it. But our American friend was, uh, this friend is incidentally, I like to say bad things about my friend, especially if they are good friends, Eric Sentner from Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> he, he felt, uh, even after we explained it to him, he felt, we saw how he felt bad, as if you know, all these breasts bouncing about him are somehow <laughs> too close, too open, you know, like <laughs> putting some kind of Pressure, pressure on him, as I put it, no? So you see, the point is not, you, uh, the, point, the point is not we Europeans are more restrained. We are more restrained at some level, you are more restrained at another level. But my message here is that this restraint is precisely a way to keep the neighbor at a distance. Which is why. I think that in today's vulgar times, when precisely uh, good manners are no longer upper-class good manners, upper-classes are, I will not name your and our politicians, are getting more and more vulgar, sometimes in the United States and in Europe. When I listen to today's politicians, my reaction is not only I don't agree with them, but where is their decency, where are their manners? My moral ideal here is almost an ideal is... A wonderful anecdote, and if I know it correctly, it's a true one, about your great liberal writer, Gore Vidal. You know that famous anecdote? Once he was asked in an interview, he is well known to be homosexual, or more precisely bisexual, uh, who was your first sexual partner, male or female? You know what was his answer? I was too polite to ask. That's the attitude that we need. I don't think there is anything kind of a bourgeois, individualist about it, and so on and so on. We should, but again, all, the point of all these stories is to maintain a distance towards a toxic subject. No wonder, again, there are many books about it. Just let me enumerate you one. Lillian Glass. Toxic people, which gives a characterization of 30 types of toxic people. Some with uh, uh, funny labels, like two-faced sneaky backstabber, and so on, and so on. Then uh, you have uh, Albert Bernstein, emotional vampires, dealing with people who, who drain you dry, and so on, and so on. Uh, then you can have Susan Forward. Toxic parents overcoming their hurtful legacy, and so on and so on. And uh, what I wanted to say here is something very simple. It's that ultimately, of course, there is no ideal parent. All parents, in a way, are toxic. The conclusion to be drawn is that toxic is not just a predicate, but within this radical perspective, uh, the characterization of the subject itself. Modern subject is as such toxic, in the sense that, which is why, and this is our maybe fundamental experience today, which is why, again, we are, I claim, in our late capitalist everyday morality, so obsessed with harassment. We are harassed by the toxicity of the subject, which can be real harassment, beating, it can be obscene remarks. It's just this traumatic intrusion of otherness. The subject as such is toxic, toxic in its very form.
and again, the political consequences are quite crucial here, because I think that especially today, in the times of crisis, the usual reaction is a paranoiac one, that you put the blame on some toxic subjects, terrorists or bankers and so on. For example, even if I am definitely a critic of the Zionist politics of Israel and so on, but I also try to detect ruthlessly traces of anti-Semitism. And I found them in, you remember a couple of months ago that Bernard Madoff scandal. How quickly he was, uh, he was uh, crucified as what? A perverted guy. I think, I don't defend him, but I'm saying he was just doing what the logic of the system demanded of him pushing it a little bit further. I don't, and I, I was shocked at this secret underlying anti-Semitism when he was presented as this kind of a creepy, exploiting, and so on. When? What was rather the effect of the system? Just, he was just following the logic of the system to the end, was presented as his personal pathology, and so on, and so on. So, uh, uh, I claim that insofar as we are slowly moving, and the names can be war on terror, ecology, whatever, towards some kind of emergency state, ultimately what we are fighting is the toxic other. It can be for conservative, it can be terrorists, it can be, for example, for radical multiculturalist liberals, this uh, uh, racist, fundamentalist, low-class rednecks, the other way around for Pat Robertson and other nice guys, it's uh, you probably, New York, uh, Boston and so on, who are toxic. But uh, so where is all this coming? You know Giorgio Agamben's theory about emergency state. And it's ironic that Italy is now the first country where this is Realized, namely his theory about emergency state, not precisely as state of exception, but as something more and more normalized. Do you know that uh, in July 2008, the Italian government proclaimed the state of emergency in entire Italy, with the explicit aim to legitimize the deployment of armed forces, not only police in in the cities, in everyday life, their presence today. It, uh, the first excuse was precisely the toxic neighbor for this. It was against the illegal entry of the immigrants from North Africa and Eastern Europe. Then, uh, uh, so again, already at the beginning of August of the last year, uh, uh, 4,000 armed soldiers were deployed to control sensitive points in big cities, train stations, commercial centers, and so on and so on. Then it goes on. They were used soldiers in Naples to, against mafia. Now there are even serious plans to use them uh, to protect women against rapes, against rape. 
The idea is to deploy them in parks or in suburbs and so on and so on. Now you will say, but I'm exaggerating, but nothing, but life goes on normally in Italy. But that's my point. That's how we will pass into emergency state. It will not be this old-fashioned, one morning you awaken, uh, curfew and so on. Life will go on as normal, just it will be an emergency, uh, an emergency state. Uh, which is the underlying procedure here, namely the procedure of protecting us against this toxic neighbor. It's the formula of reasonable racism. I think this is more and more becoming part of our daily lives. Uh, the originator, creator of this formula, not reasonable ra uh, racism, but rather reasonable anti-Semitism, was uh, the uh, the well-known French fascist intellectual Robert Brasillach, who was shot after liberation in 1945, uh, uh, in 1938, he proposed the formula of reasonable anti-Semitism. He presented himself as moderately anti-Semitic. And here is a quote which is worth quoting today. I quote, We grant ourselves permission to applaud Charlie Chaplin, a half-Jew, at the movies, to admire Proust, a half-Jew, to applaud Yehudi Menuhin, a Jew. And even, I like this, the voice of Hitler is carried over radio waves named after the Jew Hertz. We don't want to kill anyone. We don't want to organize any pogroms. But we also think that the best way to hinder the always unpredictable actions of instinctual anti-Semitism is to organize a reasonable anti-Semitism. End of quote. I, I claim that this same attitude is at work in the way our governments are dealing, especially in Europe, we are worse here than you Americans, are dealing with the so-called immigrant threat. After righteously rejecting direct populist racism as unreasonable, unacceptable for our civilized democratic standards, they then endorse a reasonably racist protective measures. Or, as today's Brazilians, many of them social democrats, are telling us, here I invent their argumentation, we grant ourselves permission to applaud African sportsmen, African and East European singers, Asian doctors, Indian software programmers. We don't want to kill anyone. We don't want to organize any pogrom. But we also think that the best way to hinder the always unpredictable, violent, anti-immigrant defensive measures is to organize a reasonable anti-immigrant protection. That's, I think, in Europe generally accepted. Often in this, in the mode of this disgusting excuse that by enacting, as already Brasiliach put it, by enacting reasonable anti-Semitism, we just do it in order to prevent violent mob and so on anti-Semitism or anti-immigrant outbursts. Uh, another aspect of this fear of the neighbor is what? You will say I'm talking about imaginary things. No. The latest, I wouldn't say literary scandal, but interesting phenomenon in book 
publishing lately after my great book published by MIT. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, did you notice how traumatically was received a book which is very interesting? I'm not saying it's a very good book, but I advise you to read it. Jonathan, I don't know how to pronounce it, Little, probably, because it's E and double L. Le Bienveillant, The Kindly Ones. I mean, you know, some people celebrate it as a great book, others as a total obscenity. What is so traumatic in this book? It provides, it's 950 pages, it appeared a couple of uh, uh, months ago here in the United States in American translation. The book provides a fictional first-person account of the Holocaust from a German participant, the SS Obersturmbannführer Maximilian Aue. The catch is precisely how to render the way the Nazi executioners experienced and symbolized their predicament without engendering sympathy for them or even justifying their. And this is, I think, what makes the book so sympathetic. It's, some people claim, wait a minute, he's presenting us the guy who organized Holocaust at the mid-level. He's not the top level. As somebody basically like us and so on. But I claim, but that was the horror of it. My point is this one. Already the last time when I was here, I remember, I quoted as something to which I'm really opposed, this noble, po uh, noble multiculturalist, anti-racist saying, an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. Like, you know, this uh, cheap wisdom. I hate you because I don't know your dreams, your fears, and so on. If I attentively listen to also to your side of the story, I will discover you are human like me with your weaknesses, blah, blah, blah. Even, I claim this ideology, we find it lately even, that's why I hate the, the movie, with Dark Knight, The Last Batman. Uh, it's very dangerous film. In my Stalinist mood, I would say publicly burn it. Why? <laughs> Two reasons. One... No, 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 I have nothing against this kind of uh, 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 commercial big spectacle movies. For example, a movie that I liked very much, and it failed for very interesting reasons. Is, uh, did you see, I forgot the director, The Eagle Eyes. A very interesting uh, paranoiac thriller about an ordinary guy who gets, okay, it's a more complex story, I will simplify it, who got, gets... A phone call and the feminine voice tell him, you will be arrested in five minutes, run out of the house. He doesn't believe it, it really happens. Then something very mysterious happens, like he doesn't believe this voice, he runs somewhere. Then he sees there on a big commercial display, turn left, run there, and so on. As if somebody controls the entire reality and directs him. Okay, what happens in the middle of the film when we learn what is really going on is that uh, uh, Pentagon has a mega, mega secret ultra strong computer which makes decisions and so on and so on. And what happens in the beginning of the film is that United States have to decide. They suspect that in a small Arab village there is a mega terrorist. And, but they are not sure. Should they bomb the village or not? The president says yes, bomb it and they kill many civilians, and the result is that uh, 
that there are, as a counterattack, many new terrorist attacks on the American soil and so on and so on. So what, it's an intelligent plot. The idea is that this supercomputer, which is ordered, which is a megacomputer connected digitally to other media, which is why it's so spread out its control that it can control traffic lights or whatever, whatever is somehow connected with the web. Uh, this computer then decided, this computer is programmed so that it takes care of the true American interest, safety and so on. And this computer decided that the stupid president who ordered this bombing is a clear and present danger for the safety of the United States. So he, uh, the, sorry, it, she, whatever, the computer enlists the hero and another uh, single mother, it's a complex story, I will not bore you with it, to, to organize the bombing to kill the president of the United States. Now, the problem is this one, that this is, I think, the, one of the ambiguities of the film, that, uh, no, of course, you are supposed to be on the side of the hero trying to prevent the, uh, this act, but I would say, my God, it's a good computer, a good proposal. I mean, <laughs> what's wrong about it? Maybe we need such computers. No, I mean, it doesn't work, but it's also, you know, I always fell for this dream because it's almost like a Truman Show, or rather this uh, uh, enemy of the state paranoia, but turned around, you know. I always like this effect of, let's call it, paranoiac, denaturalization of reality, you know. You walk on the street and you see how there is not just neutral reality there, uh, publicity displays, lights, and so on. Somehow everything is controlled, manipulated to guide you, as if it's a very nice paranoiac vision. So in, con in contrast to this film, I have two problems with Black Knight. I wonder if you agree. I mean, again, I do it in my Hegelian way. I haven't seen the film. <laughs> I have more important things to do. The first one is I hate so much. It started a couple of years ago. And here we are going back to the topic of the neighbor. This, uh, how should I call it, psychologization of the hero. You know, in the last years, did you notice how all these movies about superheroes, uh, uh, Spider-Man, Batman, and so on, they, as some critics put it, they show us the hero as a fragile a person with nightmares, weaknesses, anxieties, not just a flat superhero, as if this makes the hero somehow more human and the movie more serious, humanistic or whatever. On the contrary, I think, this is how ideology today works, through this false humanization. I mean, everything can be excused by saying, oh, but you see, I'm a human being, and so on and so on. My God, everybody is a human being. Hitler was absolutely a human being. Listen to that documentary that they did a couple of years ago with the secretary of Hitler who died a couple of years ago. Just before that, she finished a documentary where you definitely see Hitler. He was, very he was very nice to his dog. He liked to embrace small children, giving them cakes with cream and so on and so on. Warm human being, absolutely. So I think back to this, the kindly ones. This is for us so difficult to accept that even the most terrifying guys, what makes them so terrible is not their inhumanity but their humanity that you know 
when you try to understand them from within, as that big shitty proverb says, to hear their story. You see that it's a nice, warm, even why not, sincere story. And nonetheless, they can be no less terrifying. So, again, this is not the neighbor. You don't get at the toxic dimension in this way. The toxic dimension is elsewhere. A step further now. So, how did we arrive at this, how should I call it, uh, at this obsession with toxicity, with the toxic subject. Why are we so sensitive to it today? Because our everyday ideology is more and more permitted, penetrated by the subjectivized logic of experience. I'm sorry if I repeat myself here a little bit, but it's a crucial line of thought. What do I mean by it? Just to make it clear, let me refer to three stages of capitalism, you know, the Protestant, uh, the, this uh, organization and capitalism and today's postmodern whatever capitalism and especially linked to this, let me, okay, let me uh, presentify, illustrate these three steps by three logics of publicity. This will bring us to how ideology functions today, precisely the ideology which generates, talk, which needs toxic neighbors and protection against harassing toxic neighbors. Let's imagine I want to buy a Land Rover. What kind of publicity would there have been in different levels of uh, stages, whatever, of capitalism? The traditional capitalism would probably involve, predominantly at least, some kind of direct publicity referring to real or imagined, it doesn't matter, properties of the object, like it would emphasize the quality of the Land Rover, only so many gasoline it spends per mile, uh, it can really go through rivers, steep mountains, whatever, what it does. Then, uh, more appropriate towards this organization, man, whatever we call it, monopoly capitalism, uh, uh, big companies, managerial capitalism, would have been this uh, keeping up with the Jonas's uh, competition level. The message of publicity would not have been so much real qualities as symbolic status, like by having this car you signal something, your status, your superiority and so on with regard to your neighbors. Uh, but I claim today more and more a different kind of uh, publicity is present. A publicity which does not present itself referring to, which doesn't function through the reference to real properties of the object or to object as a status symbol, but rather the object that you have to, that you want to buy, that it solicits you to buy, the object as uh, something that provides an, as we put it, authentic experience. Today, for example, probably predominantly, the publicity for Land Rover would have been, do you feel oppressed impotent in a big city. Drive our Land Rover, you will see what does it mean, the freedom of nature, to be a true man, feel free, and so on. Like, the experience it provides. And this experience is, I claim, if I may repeat my old joke, some of you maybe know it, uh, much more expanded than it may appear. For example, let me take the example, sim similar one of organic food. 
I'm skeptic about organic food. Don't tell me that those rotten apples which cost double of the bad apples are that you uh, that you really believe that they are more healthy and so on. Maybe they are, maybe they are not, I doubt. What I don't doubt is the following, that the reason you buy them is not because you really believe you take care of your health. It's more that it makes you feel good, you know, like, oh my God, listen, even when I buy apples, I participate in some greater social project of keeping our planet alive, of keeping the unity of all spiritual and living beings, all the Dalai Lama stuff, and so on and so on. Or it's the same with uh, Starbucks are the bad guys for me here. You know, all the stuff they do, like, basically the message is in one or another forum with every cup of cappuccino that you buy in our store, you save another Guatemala children from blindness or something like that and so on. You know, it's to provide the additional experience. Like, this acquired, for me at least, the most disgusting forum around half a year ago when I noticed, I don't know what goes on now, that Starbucks were selling something they called ethos, ethos like ethics. Maybe you notice it, ethos water. It's part of a program. Let me quote it. Ethos Water, from their website of Starbucks. Ethos Water is a brand with a social mission, helping children around the world get clean water and raising awareness of the world water crisis. Every time you purchase a bottle of Ethos Water, Ethos Water will contrib- contribute U.S., dollars zero zero five five cents towards our goal of raising at least 10 millions by 2010 and so on and so on and so on and so on so what does this mean well practically this means that in with other providers others cafe nero or what a bottle costs two dollars here it costs 250 and you buy it because of the lousy five cents they profit even more but again the point is that uh, uh, the ideology is integrated with consumption. Like, you buy water, at the same time it provides an experience, helping children, and so on and so on, all that stuff. (coughs) Uh, I claim that uh, the neighbor is the one who, how should I put it, who doesn't, who disturbs this field of experience. Which is why one of the defenses against the neighbor is, of course, Charity, which you always find, also find in Starbucks, and so on and so on. It's my old thing. I think I, I will repeat it. I think the last time I was here, I also put it that. Uh, why is charity so popular today? Among other things, for purely ideological reasons. When you see, you know, those disgusting manipulations, a crippled black child, and then again, the message, something like, for the price of two cappuccinos, you can save this child's life. What this means is, the true message is what? It's something like, we all know horrible things are going around the world and we don't really care about them, screw them. But we have to pretend. What we are allowing you is that for the price of a couple of cappuccinos, you could ignore the, 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 the plight of these children, but at the same time you can ignore it with good feeling that you are doing something and so on. You can go on doing really nothing about it that's how ideology functions today. Okay, so you see, you, again, the toxic neighbor disappears. Charity is a way to make the toxic neighbor disappearing again. How is this linked to our uh, 
how is this linked to our present? Uh, something happened with the 68 movement. I mean this generally. In France, it was the rebellion, student rebellion. In Germany also, here it was a more a larger movement. And I think the key to today's capitalism is how this rebellion was triumphantly integrated. Integrated in the sense that all the main motives of rebellion, fight against alienation, commodification of daily life or whatever, was taken over, was perfectly integrated. You want to fight against bureaucracy, commodification of daily life, of course, we provide you now with commodities, with experience and so on, which can render your life meaningful and all the stuff and so on and so on. So now I want to slowly approach a conclusion with a much more traumatic and real question. The question is, okay, I can complain, manipulation and so on, suffering, but uh, there is a simple pertinent question. Isn't it obvious that alternatives to liberal democratic capitalism don't work? that liberal democratic capitalism works better than all known alternatives. So why insist on changes? Why not simply basically accept the system the way it is and just fight for a little bit of change, better here, better there, and so on and so on. Now, the obvious leftist answer would have been, wait a minute, where do you live? The ongoing financial crisis, financial meltdown. Is this not the proof that things don't function? Well, I'm not so sure. Of course, it's a proof that there is a flaw in the system itself. But uh, I don't believe that the result of the ongoing crisis will be some kind of socialist awareness and so on and so on. If you ask me, it's uh, very ambiguous. You know, when there is a crisis, especially a traumatic, shocking crisis, people react in different ways. The first reaction is not so much to question the fundamental ideology, but to stick to it even more desperately. So, uh, uh, so I think that you know probably Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, the idea that capitalism can use traumatic events, wars, even natural disasters and so on, as something which, as it were, shatters things, clears the table of old ideological, religious, whatever prejudices to then impose its brutal agenda. I claim, what if the ongoing financial crisis will also be used as another, another of this kind of uh, shock therapy? The first effect of crisis was this kind of effect. It was one of uh, uh, making our priorities clear. Let me just uh, point out two things here. The first one is, did you remember something weird? When I heard it was still President Bush addressing for the first time the U.S. nation about the crisis... What did strike me, and many commentators noticed this, is that he almost 
used often the same phrases as in his public address after September 11th. Let's leave aside partisan divisions. This is the moment of, of great, great crisis where our very way of life in it is, is in trouble. We have all worked together to, to save our way of life and so on and so on. It's almost a new version of, the, uh, of terror. Second uh, thing, how immediately priorities were set straight. Let me, what do I mean by this? You know, we often debate about, uh, uh, like, how many billions for uh, hunger, for ecology, and so on. And there you can always postpone and so on. There was a meeting about, in Bali, you remember, about ecological crisis. It was hailed as a success because the result was that, I'm not joking, they, they will meet in two years to debate again, and so on, and so on. You can postpone. There were 20 billion dollars uh, uh, that the great powers wanted to give to, uh, to countries in development to help uh, the food crisis, uh, prevent the food crisis, only two billions were effectively given. There you can compromise. But did you notice how different things was with the financial meltdown? There, there was, how should I put it, no bullshit. In one, two weeks, the impossible was done, an unimaginable, almost in the Kantian sense, sublime sum of money. That we, I mean, let's admit it, around one, two billions, we can still somehow manage to imagine what it means. After four, five hundred billions, it's, you say, okay, it's not 600, it's 700. What do I care? I mean, it, it, it becomes irrepresentable, but it was absolutely accepted. Your democracy itself was put into a kind of emergency state. In what sense? Don't you, it was practically de facto suspended. You know in what sense? Did you, don't you remember how the first time the vote was negative, this bailout plan, you remember, 700,000 uh, 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 billion dollars, was rejected by Congress. And what then happened was something, for me, at least unique. They all got together. By all, I mean uh, Bush, uh, 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 Bush, McCain, Obama, all of them, with basically the same message to to the Congress, which was, wait a minute, we are not joking here. We cannot play now these games of voting majority, minority. <laughs> Fuck off. This simply has to be done. And they did it. Isn't this wonderful? In one week, they turned it around like the message was clear. Now we don't have time for this democratic games debate. It simply, it simply has to be done. That's how things function. Priorities were set straight. Uh, uh, so uh, that's the first. The second. Okay, I will now shorten it a little bit so that I don't talk too long. Because uh, the uh, second thing I want to develop, apropos of this crisis, is how do we react to this crisis? Nonetheless, the thing to avoid, absolutely, I claim, is the. Uh, and here I almost agree with those who advocate helping big banks. You know, things are much more desperate than you think. Of course we can say, uh, help real people, not Wall Street. But sorry, the logic of capitalism is that without Wall Street, there is no Main Street. You can, I mean, that's the logic of capitalism. You cannot say, let's help directly people. 
You cannot. It was necessary to do this. So problems are more radical here. It's not just a small flaw that can be regulated with new laws and so on and so on. The danger here is the danger of anti-modernity, this populist danger. Yesterday evening here in the hotel after I arrived, I saw on my favorite channel, for purely masochistic reasons, Fox News. I watched them. <laughs> the only interesting cable, no? And I saw in Texas some stupid folk singer, Republican, conservative. The shock was, you know which one? It tells us a lot. This is how you should study ideology today. At the same time, on, I don't know which one, PBS or what, there was a long documentary on your great almost communist pop singer, Pete Ziger. My God, I thought, but this guy, this disgusting redneck Republican from Texas, my God, he was almost saying the same thing, of course, with the opposite political meaning, but you know, bad, rich, elite, uh, Wall Street, we hardworking people of Texas, who, as you know, the new Alamo, no one to secede now, you know the latest news, no? But uh, what I'm saying is that uh, we should precisely resist this simple populist temptation. You know, like, screw the rich people. No, it doesn't work this way. You have to question the system if you want to do something more radically. Or you have to accept the game. And we have to go here to the end. Like what? Uh, like, for example, I like Morales, Evo Morales. I think his politics are much more interesting, incidentally, than what Chavez is doing. I think Chavez is just lucky. He has oil dollars. He can, he's Fidel Castro with oil. But the problems of Morales are much more interesting. But nonetheless, recently, uh, uh, a couple of months ago, I think, I found it on uh, the Internet. He issued Morales a public letter with the title, Climate Change Save the Planet from Capitalism. Listen to what he said. Sisters and brothers, sounds like, as you know, Cornel West, no, it is. <laughs> uh, today, uh, I had a nice conversation with Cornel West. He told me that he is giving, a couple of years ago, a talk on Brother Anton. It took me some time to, take, to get it that he means Anton Chekhov, no, you know. So I did something very evil. I'm good friend by him, but he looked at me with... I told him, oh, and I'm giving... A, a seminar on the ideology of Brother Adolf, you know, like on Nazi, Nazi ideology. No, okay, but let's go on. That's how Morales talks. Sisters and brothers, today our Mother Earth is ill. From the beginning of the 21st century, we have lived the hottest years of the last thousand years. Global warming is generating abrupt changes in the weather. The retreat of glaciers and the decrease of the polar ice caps, the increase of the sea level and the flooding of coastal areas where approximately 60% of the world population live, the increase in the process of desertification and the decrease of freshwater sources, and so on and so on. That I agree, but listen. Everything began with the Industrial Revolution in 750, which gave birth to the capitalist system. In two and a half centuries, the so-called developed countries have consumed a large part of the fossil fuels created over five million centuries. Competition and the thirst for profit 
without limits of the capitalist system are destroying the planet. Under capitalism, we are not human beings, but, uh, but uh, consumers. Under capitalism, Mother Earth does not exist. Instead, there are raw materials. Capitalism is the source of the asymmetries and imbalances in the world. Again, while, end of quote, while totally subscribing to the first part, all the ecological catastrophes, I don't like the ideology in the second part. Uh, these lines that I just quoted render, I think, with painful clarity a certain ideological limitation. Morales relies on an unproblematic way, in an unproblematic way, on the narrative about the fall which took place at a precise historical moment. I quote, everything began with the Industrial Revolution in 750. And, predictably, this fall consists in losing our roots in Mother Earth. Quote again, remember, under capitalism, Mother Earth does not exist. Well, I'm tempted to add this, at least one good thing that capitalism did. Uh, capitalism is the source of the asymmetries and imbalances in the world. The way to face ecological crisis is not to construct it, nature, as some kind of mother earth that we heard balanced to be restored, but it's to accept the radical contingency and blind, blind stupidity of nature. It's much more tragic, you know. Nature doesn't give any messages. It's just stupid. It improvises. It's half crazy. For example, Morales himself mentions how we are using uh, fossils and so on. Yeah, but what are these fossils? They are, if we already speak this language, they are traces of the madness of Mother Nature. My God. Can you imagine what kind of ecological catastrophe there must have been so that we have oil? I mean, that's the first thing for me. The second thing, one should even go further here and remain and uh, remain uh, specific. I don't think our target should be, as some either Heideggerians, otherwise I have a great respect for Heidegger, or Frankfurt School people, Adorno, Horkheimer, with their critique of instrumental reason claim, I don't like this generalization, which is very fashionable today, from critique of capitalism to critique of whatever you call it, technology, uh, instrumental reason, manipulation, domination, and so on. I remain, in an old-fashioned Marxist way, convinced that, uh, not that I'm blaming capitalism in any moralistic way, but that what we attribute to modern technology, this tendency to dominate over nature more and more, to exploit nature, is what happens to technology within the capitalist frame. It's the capitalism, which is in its uniqueness, the only social system which, as we know, can only thrive by constant, through its constant reproduction, expanded reproduction. It's that which pushes us towards more and more, towards excess. So, that's the next point. Finally, uh, 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 so where are we today if things are like this? I return to my crucial question, which is, why even demand any change? I mean, 
aren't things, at least still now, if we abstract from these paranoiac visions, which are for me not paranoiac, very real, but nonetheless they may appear exaggerated of ecological catastrophe and so on. Why? Because I think capitalism itself is slowly entering a new state. Where do we find signs? Peter Sloterdijk, my good friend but political opponent, when we meet, I always tell him, wait a minute, when I take power, you get immediately first-class ticket to Gulag there far. <laughs> but we are friends. We are friends. <laughs> he, to he told me a very nice, adequate thing recently. He told me that if there will... He told me that he likes to play an imaginative game. If the present tendencies will go on, to whom will people raise monuments one from our time, to what, which, to whom of our contemporaries will people build statues, monuments, 100 years from now. His idea was Lee Kuan Yew. You know what he was. The long years president of Singapore, who the first invented and successfully practiced the so-called what we poetically today like to call capitalism with Asian values, or less poetically, capitalism which at the economic level functions more or less with all the brutal market logic following it, but at the same time, capitalism sustained with basically more or less authoritarian rule. Uh, this, I think, is one of the threats that I see today, and that's for me the message of China of today's China, much more dangerous than all that Falun Gong oppression of religion or Tibetans or whatever. What? Uh, till now, capitalism at least had one good thing to say for it, that it was somehow more or less inextricably linked with democracy. You had, true, from time to time, like five, ten years, maybe even more of military dictatorship, like to make things run. But then it's true, there was, after 10, 15 years, when things start functioning, more or less at the level of economy, there was a push towards democracy, which usually did win. Chile, South Korea, and so on and so on. I think that what we are getting now with this capitalism with Asian values, first, invented in, only in Singapore by Lee Kuan Yew, then expanded to China. I don't know if you know that when he was preparing his reforms still, Deng Xiaoping visited Singapore and said, this is our model, this is what we need in China. Here we are getting something which should make us fear, if you want, uh, which is the capitalism, which is in a way even more dynamic than our Western liberal capitalism in its uh, force of expansion, revolutionizing daily lives and so on, but no longer needs democracy. That is to say, I know relatively well China and I don't believe those liberals who think, wait a minute, give them five, ten years, democracy will explode. What if it will not? I don't think it will, if you ask me. And it's incredible to what extent uh, this, how should I put it, fear of democracy, what, or especially of labor's movement, is 
really integrated into the Chinese system. For example, a half-dissident friend of mine in China told me something wonderful, that the Chinese leadership is so afraid of any independent trade union workers' protest movement that, and okay, I have to trust him. He showed me the book. I don't know what those stupid signs mean. I mean, uh, he translated them to him. He claimed that it's incredible that, you know, as every communist party, they publish their own official history of the Chinese Communist Party, that the very glorious otherwise, and historically it's true, chapters which in previous editions celebrated the role of the Communist Party in organizing workers' resistance in Shanghai in 1920s, 30s, basically the role of the communists in organizing workers to strike, to demand better conditions, is censored now. Even if it's the glory of the Communist Party, they're afraid that this may give wrong idea uh, today <laughs> to people, no? So uh, uh, this is, I think, what is so unsettling about it. Or more precisely, what is so unsettling, and don't be afraid, I will conclude now soon, about all this is that I don't think this is just some kind of a, a result of, West, of, you know, Eastern, uh, more primitive or more authoritarian spirit or whatever. What makes me a pessimist? I will conclude now with just a brief hypothesis. I'm not an economist, but since... If there is a lesson about this financial meltdown is that economists obviously don't know what is going on, so whatever. I will also risk a hypothesis. Uh, is, uh, I think that there is something in the changes in today's global capitalism which pushes it towards more authoritarian political forum. Strong state is more and more needed. Contrary to those, even Negri and Hart, otherwise I think there are many valuable things to learn from them. But often they play this game, empire is just the uh, molecular interaction of multitude of companies, blah, blah, state no longer important. I think that state is maybe more important than ever. Why? What is happening today? It is what... Negri and Hart write a lot about the so-called predominance of intellectual labor. That is to say, the process that was somehow imagined in very vague terms already by Marx, but in a fatally wrong way, of a moment when knowledge, expertise, or intersubjective practical practical ability, however you call it, becomes the crucial factor in creating the wealth so that spending the labor force, time, work time, labor time as a measure of value becomes meaningless. Marx calls this, this objectivized knowledge, he uses the famous expression in English, general intellect, in the sense that the more capitalism is developed, the less it's even meaningless to have this standard form of exploitation where you exploit worker, uh, you know, the worth is, value is created through the time of the labor spent and all that uh, extra profit appropriation and so on and so on. We know the story. So here is Marx at his best and at his worst. On the one hand, he 
imagined a society where the classical capitalism with this standard exploitation of work no longer functions. But in a very non-dialectical, naive, technocratic reasoning, he thought this will, and here he comes the closest to the simple catastrophe, natural end of capitalism theory. He simply thinks that capitalism will have to collapse. The moment, I mean the moment, it's not a moment, but the more physical labor becomes a quantité negligible, negligible marginal element in creating wealth, the more meaningless, inoperative capitalism based on exploitation becomes. What Marx, what is the mistake of Marx, done for philosophical reasons, the way he conceptualizes labor, his neglect of intersubjectivity and so on, that's another story. But the point is that what he was not able to grasp, it wasn't in his horizon, is that, yes, we have general intellect, the shared let's call it spiritual substance, substance of collective intelligence as the true source of value, scientific and so on today, but that one can also privatize this general intellect itself. And this, I think, I rely here on some Italian economists who are not exactly the same with Negri, but close to him. I think they provide a nice formula. They claim that the result of this privatization of general intellect, of collective knowledge, is what? It's that uh, the main source of wealth, of capitalist profit, what, is not exploitation, profit proper, but rent, you know, like rent control, rent. That if historically capitalism moved from rent, land rent, I give you, to profit, now at least up to a point we are going back from profit to rent. And I think, to me at least, with my limited Balkan primitive whatever knowledge, this works in what way? Let me be very naive. Let me take an example like, uh, Bill, okay, the example, Bill Gates. How did he become in one, in 30 years, from a nobody who was just playing in his garage, the wealthiest man in the world? Where does his... 60, now down to 30, if I read it correctly, billion dollars come from. You cannot play the game of exploitation. You cannot even say he really exploits his workers. I totally believe he's paying his own employees relatively well. I also don't think some desperate traditional Marxist attempts to say he's uh, sucking extra profit from others' works. I think, why? where does his wealth come from? In the guise of his quasi-monopolistic position with Windows and so on, he privatized the digital general intellect. And we are paying rent. I claim it's a clear example of rent profit. It's, sorry, it's no longer profit, it's rent. And uh, at the same time, the same goes for natural resources. I mean, if you stick to the classical Marxist theory of exploitation, then... Hugo Chavez is exploiting American workers because his main source of money is oil and for Marx he is emphatic here. Ironically, in Capital he even uses oil as an example, trying to prove that natural resources are never the source of money, sorry, the source of value. So, again, we have rent. And what's my point here? 
what has this to do with the stronger role of state or authoritarian capitalism and so on? My thesis is that, a very precise one here, that in contrast to simple material commodities where you are selling something on the market, it's clear what it's yours, it can be touched usually, the product and so on, where the price can be determined through simple market competition and so on and so on, with natural resources already, but especially with intellectual property, you cannot do it in this simple way of marketing. Because, you know, intellectual property is, to put it naively, by its nature communist. It tends to be collectivized. It has this, with material property, it's the more you use it, the less of use it is for the others. I buy a cake. If I eat half, you have less. But if I, but if I read a book and write something about it, we all have more. It's much more collective in nature. So here, even if it looks that it's market competition, the very conditions for what will be the price, what counts as your property and so on, has to, have to be fixed by state, by legal regulations. Which is why the whole immaterial work scheme presupposes a very strong state which has to guarantee, guarantee and arbitrarily enforce. I cannot emphasize enough the word arbitrarily. The fact that you pay for Windows 2000, I don't know what, which Windows, I don't know how it is, $200. There is nothing, there is no logic of value there, you know. It's not that so much materials, so much I don't know what was spent. It's also not really competition. It's not that Bill Gates competed with others and so on and so on. It's rent, monopoly, and at the same time, based on arbitrary, legally enforced regulations, which tell this is your property, this is not, where, I mean, intellectual property, it's always arbitrary how you fix what is property. Because we know that if you leave it totally to the market, we wouldn't have more competition, we would have less competition. If we were to leave it totally to the market, uh, Bill Gates would have probably 100% today. That's the nice paradox that the strong state, you know, with all those anti-Microsoft, anti-monopoly uh, moves, the strong state was needed even to keep the market alive, and so on and so on. So again, what I think is that because of this growing role of rent at the expense of profit, market economy will have to be more and more sustained by strong state measures, which I claim will have to be more and more, will demand more and more some form of authoritarian state. It may still be formally a democratic state, but the key decisions will be done like the one uh, uh, to get the bailout money, you know, like, okay, okay, democracy, but wait a minute, this is serious now, like. So in this, this is for me a possible, a possible opening. What gave capi capitalism legitimacy is precisely, it's, how should I call it, till now, almost, I I'm tempted to say, through, experiment, through experiment, test, experimentally tested link with democracy. Now that is slowly passé, past. 
we are entering a new era where things will change. And we have to be ready. We don't know what is really going on. I'm, I'm the last to, to, to think. Uh, all I think is, if you allow me just to conclude very briefly, uh, uh, that's life, sorry. All I, all I think is that uh, we are entering a new confused era where, and here I'm coming back to my book, The Monstrosity of uh, Religion, where on the one hand, the role of religion is mixed. On the one hand, the role of religion is, of course, to be very much problematized. In this confused state where the situation is not transparent but fundamentally opaque, Habermas wrote a book, I don't agree with the book, but the title is nice, already 15 years ago, 20, Neue Unübersichtlichkeit, the new opacity. Here, the temptation is the populist temptation, which usually then assumes the form of some kind of ethnic or uh, religious uh, justification. Here, of course, one can say, with a little bit of evil spirit, one can say what... Uh, Stephen Weinreich said, you know, he said, it's very evil thought, and I love it, that uh, without religion, it would be simply that good people would be doing good things and bad people bad things, the way it is. But you need religion to make good people do bad things. <laughs> that is to say, you need religion to convince good people that killing, torturing, whatever, is part of a larger, higher, sacred goal, whatever. But that's not all. I'm not this kind of naively anti-religious. I think that, although I'm a total atheist, that I understand the progressive use of religion as part of another dangerous topic, dangerous tendency. Namely, you know, in old Marxism, we could rely on what I ironically refer to as the big other of history. We are, you know, this naive Marxist progressism in the sense of it's not maybe determinism, but somehow history is on our side. History opens up the possibility of communism. We just have to use it and so on and so on. Uh, today, we no longer can rely on this. I don't think that we, I think we need much more arbitrary voluntarism. If we want to survive, we will just have to do it. There will be no big other of historical tendency supporting, supporting us. We cannot say this old Marxist metaphor, oh, we have to write the train of history, and even if things look bad, there is always a light at the end of the tunnel. It is always light at the end of the tunnel. But usually it's another train coming uh, <laughs> towards us. So I think this is why maybe a dose of theological-political dimension is not so bad. Because today we live in a world which is more and more legally ethical. Did you notice how today's left thinks either in ethical terms, you know, human rights or whatever, like ethical complaints, intolerance rates, and so on, or legally, how to regulate it, and so on, and so on. That's the limitation. We need genuine politics. Here, some reference to the theological-political can be helpful. 
No wonder that I was told by a friend from Latin America already from the late 50s. In, there is one memo of the CIA. I was told about the situation in Latin America where they say, in spite of Cuba, don't, be, don't put too much attention don't be worried too much about communism. Theology of liberation is the, is, is the true danger there. So it's not, theology does not mean, oh, we have God on our side. Theology paradoxically emerges precisely where there is nobody on our side. And this is, in a way, for me, the monstrosity of Christ. Now, coming back to the book, look at the cover of the book. I know what I put there, and I had a long fight with otherwise my friend, half-friend, okay, John Milbank, who protested it. You know, of course, I wanted this ironic reference to Magritte. I wanted, ceci n'est pas un dieu. This is not a god. He insisted, no, it must be, this is god. So, okay, I said, it's basically the same. What, I'm a Hegelian, so... But, you know, this is a painting of Michelangelo, Vittoria Colo uh, drawing for Vittoria Colonna, where it was a great scandal. Michelangelo tried to destroy that painting. Why? This is the theological political I want. Look at it carefully, unfortunately. Probably some conservatives at MIT bungled it and made too small a painting so that you don't see it clearly. Uh, look at the feet and especially the right hand of Christ. It's fuck off. That is to say, it shows Christ at the moment of dying, at the moment of, Father, why have you forsaken me? The face is false. The face is, ah, oh, that uh, submission. But the hand is the truth. Fuck off, Father. It's the rebelling Christ. That's what we need. What we need. Thanks very much.